Grab your Bibles, go right to the book of Psalms. We're going to jump right in this morning. Just go ahead and go to the beginning of the book of Psalms. If you missed last Sunday, I made sure to announce that no, I'm not going to walk through all 150 Psalms. There was a giant wave of relief that came across the church family. But I am going to treat Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 individually because they are that important to the entire collection. They're known as the gateway psalms, the two poems that sort of set the tone for the other 148 that follow. And uh, just as a recap, because I know it's summer and a bunch of folks were missing Sundays and all that, I'm going to throw a few slides up on the screen from last week as a reminder of what we talked about. I mentioned last Sunday that, there it is, that Psalm 1 is intensely personal and individual, and that Psalm 2 is sort of the opposite. It is very corporate and national. When I say corporate, by the way, I'm not talking about corporations. I'm talking about collectively as a group, corporate and national. And yet there's all these connections. In spite of that difference, there's all these connections between the two poems. And once you start to see the connections, you'll understand why they fit together and why they are so important to the entire book. For example, Psalm 1 contrasts two paths. We looked at this picture last week. Two paths or two ways that a man can take, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And today we're going to see that there are also two paths in a collective sense for the nations of the world and for the rulers of the world. So think of it this way. Psalm 2 portrays in corporate or collective terms what Psalm 1 depicts in individual terms. It's just an extension of it from the individual to the collective. And so that's why I pointed out last Sunday that it's possible that these two psalms were meant to be read together as one unit. And we talked about this, this thing called an inclusio, uh, this literary tool that the authors of Scripture sometimes use where they bookend certain phrases or words that tell you these were meant to be read together. And we have Beatitudes at the beginning of Psalm 1 and a Beatitude at the end of Psalm 2, right? How blessed is the man, that's very individual, right? And at the end of Psalm 2, how blessed are all. And that's very collective or very corporate. So you see this movement from Psalm 1 to Psalm 2, from individual to collective in those two statements. Now, there's some other interesting connections as well. You might recall how in Psalm 1, it says the righteous man meditates on God's word. Night and day, he meditates. Today in Psalm 2, we're going to see a very different type of meditation. Same word in the Hebrew, but referring to the nations who meditate on a strategy to oppose God's rule. Two different types of meditation. In Psalm 1, the righteous man is said to be like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water. In Psalm 2, we're going to hear that God has an anointed king who is firmly set on his holy mountain. And then there are several eschatological, uh, eschatological connections as well. For example, in Psalm 1, we saw how on the day of judgment, the wicked are blown away like chaff. In Psalm 2, we're going to hear about wicked nations who are judged and they are broken like pottery. In Psalm 1, we found out that the way of the wicked will perish. And then we find the same word in Psalm 2 when God warns that if nations will not honor the Son, they too will perish in their rebellion. So again, just to, just to press this point because it's so important, Psalm 1, two paths for each person on the earth as an individual, and the imagery then is extended in Psalm 2 for the rulers and the nations of the world. Are you with me? Very important to see this. Okay, let's dive into our text. 
Because Psalm 1 is only six verses, and I think these two psalms should be read together, we're going to go back and read through Psalm 1 as well. So let's look at Psalm 1.1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So as I explained last week, Psalm 1 is categorized as a wisdom psalm. It's, it's literally, you look at it and you're like, this could come straight out of the book of Proverbs, right? It's very proverbial. It is wisdom at its practical best, right? And that's really what, what wisdom is, is practical living. How do I take principles from God's word and apply them in my day-to-day life? Walk this path and it will lead to judgment, very practical, or walk this path and see God's prosperity come upon you underneath his sovereign hand. Very simple choice, right? But now as we turn to Psalm 2, it's a little bit of a twist. No longer are we in the wisdom, at a wisdom psalm, but we're at a royal psalm. Now that's not to say there isn't wisdom to be discovered in Psalm 2. There is, but this is a royal psalm because it deals with God's covenant with David and the role of Israel's king. So it's only one of 10 royal psalms in the entire collection. So it's very unique and very important. Now, there's a couple other unique features about Psalm 2 you should know about. Number one, it is very eschatological in nature, meaning it's telescoping to the end of days. We'll see that throughout the psalm. Also, number two, and I mentioned this in my video uh, yesterday, it is the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament. That means something. The most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. So it was highly prized by the New Testament authors. The early church used Psalm 2 as a framework to understand the world that they lived in, right? As they were being persecuted, as they saw the enemies of Christ all around them, they used Psalm 2 to frame their worldview. And we're going to see some of their references today from the book of Acts, from the book of Hebrews, and of course from the book of Revelation. It's also important to understand how Psalm 2 is structured. It is laid out in four perfectly balanced strophes or stanzas. Okay? You should be able to see them in your Bible by the spaces between the verses you see on the screen. What the translation committee does is it's their way of highlighting this very clean format of this poem. There are four sections or four stanzas that are, that are balanced out, three verses each. Look in your Bible, verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 6, verses 7 to 9, and verses 10 to 12. Can you see them? Good. So a very simple structure, very balanced. In fact, twice as long as Psalm 1, which is interesting as well. So there's all kinds of connections here. The other thing you should know in terms of structure, the words on the screen, I'll remind you of this as we go along, it's polyphonic in its structure, meaning there are multiple speakers in the psalm. Multiple voices will come through in the psalm as we read it. You're going to hear the voice of the psalmist. You're going to hear the voice of Yahweh. You're going to hear the, the, the kings of the earth speaking. Then you're going to hear about God's anointed king as he quotes what God has said to him. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this particular psalm, and I'll try to walk you through that as we go. Okay, so let's dive in. 
Act one in this drama, verses one to three. Here's the psalmist. By the way, who is the psalmist here? It's interesting. We know it's David, but not from the psalm itself. There's no superscription. In the New Testament, we find out that the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Spirit, understood David to be the writer here. But the psalmist is about to raise a question about the chaos that he sees happening in the world around him. We can relate to this, right? He's like, why do the nations seem so obsessed with opposing God's rule? What is going on? And then we're going to hear the kings of the world come forth and basically articulate what it is they're trying to do. Verse 1, the psalmist says, why are the nations in an uproar or a rage and the people devising or plotting a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel, meaning they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart or let us tear off their chains and cast away their cords from us. On to Act 2, verses 4 to 6. So the nations are raging against God, right? How's he going to respond? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So the one who is enthroned in the seat of power in the heavenly realms laughs and scoffs. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed or set my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So God's answer to the contempt of these raging nations is to say, I have a king I put him firmly in place, and he will deal with this situation. Now, Act 3, verses 7 to 9, the king now speaks. Okay, the king that was just mentioned is now the speaker. And he reveals God's plan for dealing with those who are attempting to rebel against his rule. Verse 7, I will surely tell or declare of the decree of the Lord. He, that's Yahweh, said to me, the king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay, so make sure you understand it's the king speaking, but he's quoting the decree of the Lord. Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware or pottery. And then we come to the final act here, the last three verses. The psalmist speaks again, making an appeal to the kings and the nations of the world. Verse 10, now therefore, O king, show discernment. In other words, be wise, wise up. Take warning, O judges or rulers of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. And some, some um, translations say, kiss the sun. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. But give him the kiss of submission, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, or you perish in your rebellion. For his wrath may soon be kindled. And now we have this beatitude at the very end. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, so there's a lot happening here. Now, not to get too nerdy, but I know two weeks ago in the introduction to Psalms, we talked about one of the main features of this entire book, and that is uh, Hebrew parallelism in poetry. And so one of the main types we talked about is called synonymous parallelism. And you find it in almost every single line 
of Psalm 2. Again, what is synonymous parallelism? I can barely say it. The psalmist makes a statement in line one, and then he says basically the same thing in line two, but just in a different way. It's a poetic way of, a, of reinforcing this truth by saying it in a different way. So I'll give you some examples. In, in verse two, it says, the kings of the earth take their stand. And then it says, the rulers take counsel together. Two ways of saying the same thing. Tear their fetters apart in verse three, cast away their cords, basically the same thing. Verse four, the Lord laughs and then the Lord scoffs. Okay, synonymous terms. Verse five, he speaks to them in his anger. He terrifies them in his fury. Synonymous statements. Verse eight, the nations will be given to the son as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession. Basically saying the same thing in a different way. This is poetry. This is Hebrew poetry. And then verse 10, show discernment and take warning. Two phrases that fit together. So it's found all over the place here. And again, we talked about Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme, but it rhymes ideas. And that's important to see. Okay, so let's dive a little bit deeper into these four stanzas, these four acts. And what we're going to try to do this morning is dig out what, what the psalmist was saying back in David's day. And then we'll try to draw some bridges to our day today and see how we, we as the church can utilize Psalm 2 in our worship and our prayer. Let's look back at the first three verses of the psalm. Let's look at the first act. So as you read this, maybe you, you said, this sounds familiar to me. I recognize this in my world today. We have nations in conflict, don't we? We have governments that are always raging. We have people of the earth feeling very agitated. Especially, have you noticed this right now? People are agitated. The world is roiling. And it was in David's day. Well, why is that? Because at the base level of every sinner's heart, there is an intense desire to throw off any and all restraints on our fleshly desires. At the base level of our hearts, men and women simply want to do as they please, to in effect be their own gods. And if I'm going to be my own god, then I have to get rid of the god, correct? So anything or anyone that gets in the way of filling this void in their heart becomes an obstruction that has to be moved out of the way so I can fulfill my needs, wants, and desires. This is, this is the fallen world we live in, fallen people. So the psalmist portrays the kings and rulers of this world meditating on this plan to throw off God's rule. The NAS uses the word devising. The ESV says plotting. So where the righteous man meditates on the word of God, the wicked nations meditate on something very different. They conspire. They all recognize we have a common enemy. It's God and his anointed one right? He is the one that has imposed this order upon us, this law that we despise. And so it has to be thrown off. Sort of reminiscent of the Tower of Babel. Remember early on, the people of the world all come together and they say, let's build a city. We'll build it all the way up to the heavens, right? So what? It says, so that we can build a name for ourselves, meaning it, it's a name that will rival the God of heavens. The Tower of Babel is, 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 it just continues to be played out each and every day in our fallen world. So the psalmist is describing this universal rebellion against God's law and against his rule over the earth. And the issue is lordship. The kings and rulers don't mind. You know what? Go, go ahead and believe in God. That's fine. But the issue is lordship. Who's really in control? Do I have to bow down to this God or am I in control? Who's really sovereign? At the end of the day, who calls the shots? It's about lordship. 
And we touched on this last week, whether it's ancient people or people today, the, the human view of God's law is the same. Rather than embrace his prohibitions, which are given to us out of love and care for us, right? The things that God says, don't do that. That's not good for you. Rather than see it as his care, unredeemed man and woman see God's word as a yoke to be thrown off because it restrains them and they want to do what they want to do. So you see this in verse three, the wicked cry out in their arrogance. We will not put up with God's restraints. Let us tear off his chains. Let us throw off his cords that he uses to restrain us. And whenever and wherever God gives man over to those impulses, and he does, by the way, look, if you want that, at some point God will give you over to it. And whenever he does that, he allows those restraints to be thrown off. The results are super predictable, aren't they? We're seeing it in America today. Chaos, confusion, wickedness all over our culture because we have cast off every principle from God's word that would promote social and spiritual health. And it's permeated our entire world, our entire culture. What we're watching today is a slow motion unraveling of our society because we've done what it says right here. We've taken a stand against God and against his anointed. And so we're suffering the consequences. Sadly, we get dragged into that, don't we? Because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Now, it's important to see what the psalmist thinks of all this. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, this uproar, he says, it's all in vain. These guys that are out there meditating and devising a plan to oppose God, what a waste of time. He's, the psalmist is genuinely mystified that people would even plot this way. Do they really think they can oppose God? Do they really think this is a battle that they can win? These are blind fools. And of course, very little has changed over the past 3,000 years. How many, how many times now do you look at the news and you think, do these people think they're going to get away with this? Do they think they're not going to be judged someday? They'll give an answer for what they're doing? They're spiritually blind. So they really do think they're going to get away with it. But like the psalmist says, it's all in vain because God will eventually deal with it. Now, there's an application of this truth that we see in this first stanza that gets picked up in the New Testament, and it's very important. It comes from Acts chapter 4. I'll put it on the screen in a second. In Acts 4, we have the, official, the first official persecution of the church. Peter and John get arrested by the religious leaders in Jerusalem for doing two awful things, healing a lame man, right, and then preaching about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead in the temple courts. And they're brought before the, before the Sanhedrin, right? And they give this incredibly bold defense, right? Speaking about Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. They, they cite the Old Testament and they, they condemn their interrogators. Very, very bold. And they get released and they come back to the church, back to their fellow believers, and they begin to pray and to praise the Lord. And this is how it goes. It says, They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, and here comes the quote from Psalm 2, which as you can see, they attribute to David. Okay, here it is. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his his Christ, his anointed one, right? Now, here's where it gets interesting. How are the apostles in that day now going to apply Psalm 2 to their situation? This is very important. 
Verse 27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, okay, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So here's what's going on. They point to Herod and to Pilate, to both Jews and Gentiles, and they compare them to the kings and nations of Psalm 2. Those who attempt to stand against God and against his Messiah, Jesus. This is how the apostles read Psalm 2 in their day. And the point is the earliest Christians recognized that to some extent Psalm 2 was unfolding before their eyes. Right there in the temple courts. They recognized that all the plotting of men like Herod and and Pilate, it was in vain. Why? Because God's predestined plan, which he speaks about here, had already occurred. Jesus had died and had been raised from the dead. So all their plotting to stop, their preaching to stop the healing, all of that, it's in vain. They can't stop it because God has ordained it. And they see Jesus as the king of Psalm 2. And they tell us so. So listen, we need to take a similar stance. Be at peace like the early church was in the midst of conflict. And man, they were receiving, I mean, all kinds of opposition. I know things look out of control today, and sometimes we can get kind of hopeless when we watch the news, but Psalm 2 and this story from Acts 4 gives us a way to properly interpret what's happening in the world around us. The nations still hate God, just as they did in 1000 BC. They will always hate God. To expect differently is to be foolish. They're always going to hate God, but like the apostles, we know that God's predestined plan will come to pass right? We know who's in control, and we know how the story ends. So be at peace. Okay, let's drop down and look at stanza two, beginning in verse four. The second act. In the heavenly realms, God laughs, and he scoffs at the pride of men who rage against his sovereignty. And and listen, why shouldn't he laugh? By the way, don't think in terms of human laughter. This is, this is, this is scorn, God is scornful towards these people who shake their fist at him in rebellion. How can a created being expect to stand against the creator? Right? How can flesh and blood oppose unlimited eternal power? It is so commonplace today, and you see this on, online all the time, to sort of think of Yahweh as this, he's this kind, benevolent old man in the sky that we can just ignore. The psalmist says, uh-uh. That's not him. It's not true. He is the master and the Lord of the universe, and he's sovereign over every soul. He is sovereign over every single soul that is shaking their fist at him. And they need to realize that. He's the one who knows the beginning from the end. Do they really think they're going to win this power struggle? Sadly, they're so arrogant, they actually think they will. In the meantime, God sits in perfect peace and assurance in the heavens. He's God's not up there biting his nails in worry. Oh, the people are rebelling. In fact, he doesn't even get up from his throne. It says he sits. He doesn't even even rise from his throne. And for a time, he will allow man to go on in his rebellion. But here's the key in this part of of the psalm. He doesn't just laugh. He also takes action. He has a plan to deal with this. And we see this in verse five. He has spoken to the nations in his righteous anger, And in verse 6, he has a solution. He says, I have a king. I have a king who will handle this. 
and I've installed him on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have enthroned this king in Jerusalem. He's my king. He's a unique, one-of-a-kind king, greater than any king you'll ever, ever know. This is a statement to the whole world. Wake up. You think you can keep raging against me? You think you can throw off the chains and do as you please? Maybe for a time, but I have a king, and he will deal with this. And the nation should learn. When God says for now, there's always a but then, correct? That's true for man's rebellion. It cannot last forever. And God has fixed a day when his wrath will get to the top. It will brim over and it will come pouring out. And in that day, he will deal with all the rebellious leaders and rulers and kings of the earth. And then his king, who we know in Revelation 19 is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, will bring the nations to submission and establish his rule in Zion on his holy mountain. But notice here in Psalm 2, God speaks of this future event in the present tense. He says, I have installed my king as if it's a, already an accomplished historical act. This is very important. This is what scholars call proleptic speech. Because it's God's sovereign plan, by the way, decreed from before the foundations of the world, because God has said it's done, it's done. God sees time all as one thing, not in successive ways like we do. He says, I've done this. Even though it looks to us like still a future event, God says, I've installed my king. It's done. It's done. So who is this king? If you were living in 1000 BC and you were reading Psalm 2, you would obviously look to David or you would look to one of David's descendants, right? Because of the promises given to David, the Davidic covenant. And, and listen, we can say it's true that every king in Israel who came to power, he came and he was anointed with oil by the priests as a son of God. And then the people would look to him as a potential Messiah who would come and crush Israel's enemies and usher in this golden age of prosperity. And so the people of Israel would always come back to Psalm 2 and go, this is our hope right here. It's a constant future hope. But as time passed and every single one of Israel's kings came and went, right, and failed to fulfill this grand vision of this messianic age mentioned by the prophets, you can understand why hope began to fade. Hope began to fade. Go to Israel today. You'll find very few Jews still watching for the Messiah. They've given up. They've given up. But by the time we get to the end of the psalm, we're going to see that someone far greater than David, far greater than any human king is in view, and he will succeed where the others have failed. God will accomplish his purposes through his king, which means all these rebellious kings of the earth are living on borrowed time, and their fate is actually sealed. So we come then to Act, Act 3, verses 7 to 9. And recall here, this is where the speaking voice takes a dramatic shift. The king whom Yahweh has enthroned in Zion begins to speak in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now catch this now. The king is declaring, this is so amazing. This king is declaring Yahweh's eternal decree concerning himself and emphasizing his status before Yahweh as the begotten of the Father. So we got to unpack this. And the best way to unpack this actually is to start looking into the New Testament where we get, because God progressively reveals more and more about himself from Old to New Testament, we get more information. So I'll put this on the screen again in just a second. In Acts 13, 
Paul gives us some very important information about this. This is Paul's first missionary journey, and he's gone into a synagogue in the city of Pisidian Antioch, and he's speaking to his, his fellow Jews, and here's what he preaches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says to his fellow Jews, God raised Jesus from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Now remember, this is a Jewish audience. So he's, 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 calling, he's recalling promises given in the Hebrew scriptures to the people he's speaking to, to the fathers, right? Right? You with me? Okay, good. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul explains that God has at last fulfilled his promise to Israel. Jesus of Nazareth is the king and the son of Psalm 2, prophesied by, of all people, David himself. Paul's saying this to a group of Jews. You've been watching and reading Psalm 2 for how many generations now? I'm here to tell you it's fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. All the Jewish hope is embodied in him, even though when he came, they refused to receive him, right? This is what Paul is preaching. But then that's not the only reference of Psalm 2-7 in the New Testament. It shows up in the book of Hebrews. And, and this is why I had Gabe read this as our call to worship this morning. It's worth looking at again. The author of Hebrews employs this long list of scriptural uh, citations in defense of his premise throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than everything else. He is supreme over all. And it starts this way. And, th and you guys should know Hebrew, the first five verses of Hebrews, at least the first three. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, what's that? That's the Old Testament. God spoke to the people. In these last days, the last days being the church age, he has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word. Powerful stuff, right? And then he goes on. When he had made purification for sins, right, on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they, for to, and this is the rhetorical question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? And the answer is, never happened, right? To which of the angels did God ever say, today I've begotten you? Never happened. Or again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So the point of all of these, of this verse, these five verses, is to show that Jesus is the fully divine son of God, the one of a kind divine son of God. How do we know that? Well, crazy. He created the world. That's kind of big, right? He is the visible and fleshed radiance of God's glory. He is of the same nature and substance as the father. He is the central life force by which everything in creation continues to exist. He's been given the seat of power and authority at the right hand of majesty. And here's the key for today. You see it right there in the text. Yahweh has addressed him as the 
unique, one and only son described in Psalm 2. That's exactly what he said. The author of Hebrews says, yes, Jesus is the son of Psalm 2. Now, don't be thrown off by the term begotten. Man, I, in all the years, right, Adam will, will nod his head. As elders, as teachers, we're always trying to help people don't get tripped up by this word begotten. It messes people up. Biblically, begotten is not the same thing as created. And it also is not limited by this idea of giving birth because that's how we understand that phrase in English. And we do this all the time. We take our understanding of the English and we apply it into the biblical text. The Hebrew verb here is yalad. And sometimes, yes, it does refer to childbirth, but it's also used to refer to something or someone who is brought forth or is revealed. That's the meaning in Psalm 2. In the Greek Septuagint, the word is monogenes, and it refers to someone or something who is one of a kind, a unique one among no others, just one, a subset of one, unique son. So when you read Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or you read John 1 or John 3, and it says the only begotten son of God, it doesn't mean that God gave birth to Jesus. God does not procreate. That's Mormonism. <laughs> Let it go, right? And it doesn't mean that Jesus was created by the Father either or that there was some point in time when Jesus was brought into being. Anybody who claims that, and I know the cults do and others do as well, what they're doing is mudding the waters by pointing to the understanding of the word in English. It's not the same as the biblical term. Here's what it means. And this has been the understanding of the church for 2,000 years. That in Psalm 2 and later in John 1, that Jesus is being revealed to the world as the unique one and only Son of God. The Father is, it's, it's spoken of in Psalm 2, this is his coronation. His coming out to say, the Father says, I'm revealing to you, this is my one and only Son. That's what he means by begotten. It's his coronation. This is the one. This is who I'm speaking of. The Athanasian Creed puts it very distinctly. It says, The Son is from the Father alone, neither made nor created, but begotten. Very important to understand that. And we see this, this same declaration, over and over again in the New Testament. For example, the baptism. What happens at the baptism? Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, it can't be more clear than this. This is my beloved son. Hey, you guys remember Psalm 2? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my king. And then we have the transfiguration, which we often forget about. Matthew 17, right? Jesus' full divine identity is suddenly revealed for a short period of time to just a few eyewitnesses. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a mountain, high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Man, I, it's one of those questions I have in heaven. I, 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 what did that look like, right? What was this scene like? His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This, hey, Psalm 2, this is my beloved son. With who I'm well pleased, you should listen to him. <laughs> right? Understatement of the year. Yeah, you should probably listen to him. I mean, as he's like in this transfigured state, everybody's like, 
Yeah, you should probably listen to him. I, I don't think that was a hard sell. And then lastly, Paul speaks of the resurrection of being another proof concerning God's son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by what? By the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So another proof, by raising him from the dead, God was declaring this is my only begotten son. So this gets played out over and over again in these New Testament snapshots. Jesus is the only begotten son and the anointed king of Psalm 2. Listen, no other Davidic king fits this criteria. You could search all day long. And that's why Israel's given up hope. Because no other Davidic king is this. It's important. Look back at Psalm 2 now. Look at verses 8 and 9. And this gets very explicit. The father says to the son, hey, go ahead and ask me. And I will give you all the nations as your inheritance. To the ends of the earth, it will all be yours. This is a promise to the son that when he comes to reign in Jerusalem, that he'll be sovereign over the entire world. Right? Now, historically, has there ever been a Jewish king who's done that? Oh, yeah, you know what? This, this you know, King Ahaz or King Hezekiah or King Josiah. Yeah, to the ends of the earth, they were sovereign. Not even close. Even in Israel's greatest day, Israel was a, a bit player in the ancient Near East, often having to submit to much larger powers like Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, right? No king has ever filled this. So this is obviously a prophetic word, listen to this now, that points to an era on the earth that's never been seen before. Never. This is the messianic era that the Jews had been hoping for but have given up on. This is it. And I'm convinced that this is exactly what Revelation 20 describes as the thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ, when he will, the only begotten son, the father, will return to the earth in power and actually reign from Zion in this place that, that God says in Psalm 2 is his holy mountain. We'll be standing there in November. That's why we'd love to go to Israel, because this is where it's going down. Now, what has to happen before the glorified Christ can reign over the nations? Well, first he has to destroy them in their rebellion, right? He has to take on all of these kings and rulers who say, we're going to take our stand against Yahweh and his anointed. Well, Revelation 19, the chapter before Revelation 20, right? We get that picture. Jesus is the rider on the white horse who is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, the rebellious nations who had taken their stand against him, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now that language is important because if you look back at Psalm 2, verse 9, what does it say? You shall break the nations with a rod of iron, it says in Psalm 2, and you shall shatter them like pottery. That's the connection. So this is God's sovereign plan, folks. He declared it. In the Old Testament through David, it comes into the new as well. He will triumph through his only begotten son. That's the plan. And so for that reason, we'll finish real quickly with the last, the last act, the fourth act, verses 10 through 12. These last verses are not hard to interpret. The psalmist says, hey, now that you've heard this about 
God's king and his son, now that you've heard it, wise up. Employ wisdom, you kings of the earth. You cannot prevail in this struggle. You can't win. Give up your defiance. Worship and serve Yahweh while you can. And he says, look, your submission will either be willing now or forced later. But every knee will bow. That's the warning at the end of the, at the, end of the psalm. And then you see again two subtle statements in verse 12, which again indicate that God's king is no ordinary man. First, it says he's to be honored or worshipped alongside Yahweh. And God doesn't share his glory with anyone. And then it says that the Son will pour out his wrath, the same wrath that Yahweh has, the Son has. Subtle statements, again, of their, equ- of their equality, of being of the same nature. So the instruction is clear. Honor the Son. Give him the kiss of submission and allegiance. This was a very ancient Near East thing, that when you came to a king, you bowed low and you kissed the hand, you kissed the ring. It says, kiss the Son. Show your allegiance, show your, your, your submission, or else he'll become angry. His wrath will be kindled, and he will burst forth from heaven and cause you to perish in your rebellion. And going back to Psalm 1, you will be blown away like chaff in the wind. Whew. Serious. And so we come to the end of the psalm, right? And as harsh and fearsome as some of these stanzas are in the poem, look how he concludes. What is the last statement? Always the offer of grace. Always. God is long-suffering and good. And he concludes with this beatitude of promise and grace. How blessed are all who will take refuge in this divine son, my king. How favored is every man and every woman who comes under the peace and the protection of my son. So this is the reality that the psalmist is pointing out. Listen, Jesus Christ, and and use this in in your witnessing. Jesus Christ, God's Son, will be to every person on the earth either a terror or a refuge. There's no in between. A terror or a refuge. Or some have said it this way. There is no refuge from the Son, only refuge in the Son. The choice is stark. So the church often turned to and prayed Psalm 2. Again, because they were suffering persecution and they understood about all this opposition they were facing. In our troubled times, guys, if, you, if all you do is look at the news and feel troubled and just rant and rave and shake your fist and get angry and agitated, but you don't pray, you don't take that to the Lord, then you're missing what the early church was able to do with Psalm 2. So we should be praying I'll give you some examples of how we can pray this. Lord, rise up and put down the rebellion of the nations and the kings of the world. We can pray that. But also, Lord, remove any shred of rebellion in my heart that might reflect the spirit of the world. Because it's, it's so much fun to pray about all the big things happening out there. It's less fun to pray about the things happening within. So take away my rebellion. Keep me from the path of the wicked. Or we could pray, Lord, we praise you for your sovereign plan in establishing the eternal throne of your king. But in my daily life, Lord, keep me from being distracted in these days. Keep me alert. Keep me focused on seeing his kingdom come. Okay, not just big, but my eyes. Where are they? Am I alert? 
Or am I, am I drifting off with the rest of the world? Or this one, Lord, we praise you for providing us with your only begotten son, the one who saved us from our sin. Amen. Help us to honor him now. Not just with our lips, but with our entire lives. If he really is your son and the only savior, help us to honor him by honoring you in every aspect of our lives until the day that he either A, calls us home or he returns. Make it personal. Or Father, thank you for the refuge we have in your son. Now give us eyes to see the people in our lives who aren't in that refuge, who right now stand under the wrath of God, who aren't protected because they're not found in Christ and give us opportunities to share Christ with them. And then lastly, the simplest of all prayers, Maranatha, come Lord quickly. I say it every day. And remember, friends, God is on his throne and he is in control. Despite of what we see with our eyes, he's in control. 3,000 years ago, he promised to the entire world through Psalm 2 that his son would triumph. And he is still working out those purposes even in the news today. So what we're experiencing right now are the death rows of a world that is starting to groan, starting to wear out. And we're experiencing the birth pangs of the new one to come. That's good news for us. And as believers who've been given refuge in God's Son, we can have peace and we can find comfort in the assurances of Psalm 2. So keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Have an eternal perspective and look with great hope for what's coming down the road because this is going to be awesome. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your great promise to us in Psalm 2. Lord, it, we, we see so many of these same things in our world today, Lord. We see so much rebellion, so many who hate you. Father, give us eyes, give us perspective to see the work that you're doing in the world today and to have hope and to have peace and to have contentment in the midst of it all and, and to keep our eyes fixed on the one that you have sent who will be our refuge, the one under whom we can we can stand as the wrath of God is poured out upon the world. But Lord, also give us eyes to look outside and to, and to gather your elect from the four corners of the earth to say, come under this refuge. Come to know Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. Lord, may this study today just energize us, Lord, to go out even today, this week, and to live for your glory. Thank you for your word that continues to convict us and encourage us, Lord. We love you. And even now as we, we sing words from our lips, may they, may they come from our heart, not just from the outside, but from our heart as we worship the one who has saved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.